continuing, we're going to be reading in Mark chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Let me put this in context. Mark 13, verse 1. So this is the last week of Jesus' life. We've been following the chronological life of Jesus from the time of his, uh, even before his birth, right on through. We've been in this for about two and a half, almost three years, actually. In the life of Jesus, we're in the last week of his life. We're still in Tuesday. There's more written about this day, this last Tuesday of his life, more written about this in the Gospels than any other day. And in fact, this passage that we're going to cover today, it's called the Olivet Discourse. His one discourse, this one teaching that he's given, has a full chapter in Mark, two chapters in Matthew, and, and uh, uh, almost a full chapter in Luke, written on this one discourse. So it's a, and, and, and so there's a lot recorded, this is just Tuesday afternoon we're still in. And so uh, we had learned last week that Jesus had just been in the temple and, and uh, he had uh, watched this offering take place and he talked about this widow, the widow's mite, and how she was donating. And as they're coming out, they're just coming out from this, this is the context of where the story picks up. In Mark chapter 13, verse 1, And as he was going out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Huh? In about 20, B, in about, uh, 20 BC, uh, uh, King Herod, Herod the Great, started the reconstruction of the city of Jerusalem. He cut off the top of the mountain, that mountain in which Abraham went to offer up Isaac. That actual mountain is the mountain that Jerusalem is built on today. But he cut off the top of the mountain to make a, a larger flat area, because, you know, mountains are like this. And that man changed the face of the earth, they say, more than any other single human being. King Herod did. He was a great constructor of things. You can go all over that region and see his work. And so he had the top of that mountain cut off, and he, he had already rebuilt the temple. The temple was already done by this time. And then he was rebuilding the city and walls around the city. And you can go to Jerusalem today and you can see the different periods of where the wall was. It was torn down, where the wall was rebuilt. You can see the stones of Solomon where he built the original temple. Huge stones. But all of Herod's stones are quite unique. We heard a little bit about the stones that, were, that different families built during Nehemiah's time. Those were small stones. Families did that and they just stacked them up. And it's a very disorganized sort of thing. But, you know, it, it was a wall, but it wasn't a real well-founded wall. They just, families put this thing up very quickly. But you can see the stones of King Herod. And they know that because anywhere he built, he built the stones with the same sort of shape, where there'd be a fascia on the, on the stones, where it'd be cut away a little bit. And he used the same style of, style of stones. The stones were huge, huge. You look at them today, I mean, they were like, like from here, maybe to here, and just... That big, I mean, and you look at them today and you'd say, boy, it'd be tough to get that, those stones in place. They did all that without equipment. So you, you understand that life was very cheap in the Roman Empire. And they, you know, there were a lot of lives that stacked up these stones. And, and uh, you can see these in remaining parts of the wall today. And so the disciples are going out and one of the disciples says to Jesus, you see these stones, isn't this amazing? And Jesus said, it is amazing. You know, I don't want to be a killjoy, but... <laughs> uh, 
these stones aren't going to stand one on top of the other. And in fact, that the entire city area, all of Herod's work was done long after Herod died. Remember, Herod, King Herod died, Herod the Great, when Jesus was just, just about uh, a few years old. And then, then they came back in. And so that's the King Herod that had had all the male, child, male children in Jerusalem killed that were two years old and younger. That Herod. And, and, uh, um, so, and it was, wasn't until about 60-something, 60, 60 62, 63, that all the construction was finished, 63 A.D., and then it was all to be torn down in 70 A.D. Uh, so Jesus, Jesus talked about this. And then it says in verse 3, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James, John and Andrew were, were questioning him privately. So he's now gone out of the city, and what you do, you go down into the valley and back up onto the Mount of Olives. And, and that walk, if you were to walk directly, and if there were a direct path, I'm, I'm guessing maybe 20 minutes walk, 15 minutes walk, 20 minutes walk. It's not a long walk. But the way the path goes, it doesn't generally today, it doesn't go straight down. The path goes sort of at an angle and then at an angle up. So you're not walking directly down and directly up. You, you walk sort of at an angle so you, you don't have to walk a steep a rise. I don't know what the pattern was in those days, but it's not that far of a walk. And then you can sit on the Mount of Olives and you can look right over the city of Jerusalem, right over the temple. So four of his disciples, Peter, J, Peter and James, John and Andrew, these were two sets of brothers. So Peter's brother is Andrew, James's brother is John. So it's these four disciples come to him and are talking to him. In the other Gospels, it says his disciples. It doesn't tell us which ones. Here we, get, we are told which ones. And they say to him in verse 4, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, and he went on. So now let's turn to the portion in Matthew. So we're going to look at uh, uh, Matthew. Uh, let me see here. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to start reading from verse 1. So this is the parallel portion, Matthew chapter 24, reading from verse 1. Now you've got to stay with me today because we're leaving, we're leaving the Bible 101 today and we're going into 102. All right? So you've got, you got, got to have your attention and then at the, at the end we'll just pierce our hearts with this too. But, but, so we've got to stay academically focused right now. So Matthew chapter 24, reading from verse 1. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came to him to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So there's three questions that they ask Jesus. Three questions are asked of Jesus. The three questions are, what is the sign of your coming, your second coming? Uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, the first question is, is when, when will this destruction occur? So he says, tell us, when will these things happen? Which things? The things you just described. You just said the, the buildings are going to, none of these stones are going to remain. When will these things happen? So the first question is, is, is when are these things going to happen? When is this destruction going to occur? The second is, what's the sign of your second coming? Because remember, it says, uh, and what will be the sign of your coming? And then thirdly, the sign of the end of the age. So they're asking for three different signs. We want to know what are the signs of these things occurring? That's what he's, they're asking him, very specifically. And Jesus will specifically, over these next few weeks, we'll cover this, he will answer every one of these questions. Every one of them he will answer. 
when the destruction is going to occur, what, what are the signs of the destruction, what is the sign of his second coming, and what are the signs of the end of the age. For, for the Jews, the age that they were living in was the present age, and the age in which the Messiah would reign was the age to come. And so when, when, when is the end of this age, which is then going to usher in the new age? And so, so um, those are the three questions. And Jesus answers all three questions, but he answers the third question first. You say, well, why does he do that? Because this is normal. People say, let me ask you a few questions. And it happens to me all the time at the end of a seminar. They'll say, I have a few questions. And I ask three questions. And I end up ask, answering the third question first, because that was the one that just, you know, they just said. That's the one freshest right there. So to answer the three questions in a different order in which they come, he answers the third question first, and then he answers question one, and then question two. That's what he does. And that's, that's the way he progresses in this. But you have to look at all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in order to get the answers to all three, because some of the Gospels don't, don't answer them all. For example, Luke is the only one that addresses the destruction of Jerusalem, that gives the answers to that. That's the only one, Luke was the only one that recorded that. Why? Because they weren't copying each other. And, it, and Luke took a real preference for talking about Jerusalem. He had a real concern for the city of Jerusalem. So he's the only one who addresses the destruction of Jerusalem. So, he's going to answer the third question first. The sign of the coming end of the age. How do we know when the end of the age is coming? And, and uh, so let's read it in Matthew chapter 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But it is not the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Okay, so how does Jesus answer the question? He first answers it negatively, and then he answers it positively. What do I mean by that? Say we're coming out of the church service, and you were to ask me, uh, where, where's, the, uh, where's the Bible study this morning? And I say, it's not in the room in which we normally meet. That is a negative answer to the question. If I were to say, it's not in the room that we normally meet. And then I could answer it positively, and I could say, it's going to be in room 120. That's the positive answer to that. And you say, well, why would anybody answer negatively? Because when you answer both negatively and positively, it is more clear. Let me give you an example. If we're walking out of the church, and you say, where's the Bible study today? I say, in room 120. You go, um, and you'd say to me, is that the room in which we normally meet? But if I answered negatively first by saying, it's not in our normal room, and then positively, it will be in room 120, you see how a negative answer followed by a positive answer gives you far more clarity. Are you with me? You understand that? So it's a good thing to answer in this dual way. Because if you just answer positively, people go, huh? They want more clarification, and so they want to exclude any other possibilities. So Jesus does it for them. He first answers negatively. He says, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but it is not yet the end. So in other words, many people are going to try to mislead you, but it's not the end. So in other words, you're going to... First of all, you're going to find false messiahs. 
Jesus was the first Jew to ever claim to be the Messiah. Ever. But there were many people who claimed to be, Jew, uh, claimed to be the, the Messiah after him. Simon Car- uh, uh, his name was Simon Kalboa. Something like that. And he, and he was shortly after, may, maybe in uh, uh, 40, 50 years after the time of Jesus, he came along. And then, and then probably the most recent one upon, among the Jews has been uh, probably Rabbi uh, Menachem Schneerson, who died in the 1990s. I mean, you can go to Israel today and you see his, his picture all over the walls. I mean, his, his, his disciples are still wanting him to raise up from the dead, but he hasn't yet. And, and, uh, um, and then, then it's not just among the Jews. There's many who, people who have come among the Gentiles who said they're Messiah, the Messiah. Reverend Moon has said that he is the Messiah. And, and, uh, um, and also uh, Louis Farrakhan had said that he is the Messiah. So, so among the Gentiles, there are many false messiahs coming. Jesus said, that in and of itself does not, is not a sign of the end. Don't worry about it. That's going to happen. So that's under the negative section. Under the negative session, section, he says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. In other words, it's going to be local wars. That has nothing to do with the sign of the end times. Nothing to do with it. And, and then uh, uh, there's going to be these regional conflicts. But then he goes on to the positive side. He says, now here is the sign for the end of the age. Verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So these are not regional conflicts anymore. These are world conflicts. The whole regions of the world are going to be fighting with one another. The first example of that was World War I. And actually, World War II was just an, an extension of World War I. And then what you see is you see these signs from heaven which greatly impact the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Now, we, we are a bit provincial in the United States, and, and we think the Bible has a lot to say about the United States and prophecy. Zero. Nothing. There, it is irrelevant prophetically in the Bible. Irrelevant. Some people will say, oh, well, you know, there's this thing, these eagles in the rocks. and All right, because our national symbol is the eagle. That must be the U.S. Well, if you want to, okay. But it, it just mentioned it's eagles in a rock. I mean, it's just, uh, it's quite an extrapolation. There's nothing of rel- relevancy. You know, U.S.-Iran conflict, U.S. Gulf War conflict, not prophesied. It's not there. You can try, try to get all you want, but it's not there. The U.S. is irrelevant in the context of Bible prophecy concerning the end times. Now, of course, the U.S. is relevant to us, but not in Bible prophecy concerning the end times. All right? So, so um, uh, there's now going to be wars that are going to cover the earth, all over the earth, and they are going to impact the nation of Israel. The First World War was brought about this huge Zionist movement. The Second World War, which was in many ways a continuation of the First World War, was actually brought about in 1948, the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, which was an absolute miracle. This was prophesied in the Old Testament that he will birth the nation over again in a day. In a day, a decision was made by one vote in the United Nations for this nation to start back up again. And people were like, huh? Israel of all nations? I mean, nations don't go away, totally away. For thousands of years and then just boom, pop up again. These are signs from heaven. And it happened right after that Second World War. And then he says, nations will rise against, uh, uh, 
against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. So there's, there's of course, been huge famines throughout the course of time, but really huge ones in the 1900s, that both, both uh, in China and, and, and in Russia. But in, in China, 1920, Russia, 1921. But then earthquakes. Now, I, I, I don't like to harp on this because you read about it and there's lots and lots of earthquakes. And I'm always skeptical when I read what, what Christian writers write about things. And I'm skeptical when Christian writers write about it because I don't think that Christian writers fact-check very carefully. So in other words, there are a gazillion more earthquakes in the 20th century than in all the centuries in the past combined. Well, we have these methods of detection that are really gotten quite good. So a lot of them, I'm sure, were never reported, nor could they, were they detected. But now, you know, every little you know, tremor everywhere. There's another earthquake. There's another, you see what I mean? And, and I know this because Christians will write articles about me and things that I may have said about creation or evolution or whatever. And they're totally wrong in what I said. And they never send fact checkers to ask me. If, you, if you're giving an interview to a good magazine or a good newspaper, a fact checker will always call me and say, you know, the reporter says this, is this correct? The reporter says that, is that correct? Or they'll send me portions of what they've written and say, Could you, is, is this correct? Is this what you said? Christians never do this because they assume, you know, this is going to bring glory to God. It's great. It's fine. And, but it's all wrong. And, this is, and, and, and so um, it really frustrates me to read what Christians write, even scientifically, because there's not, it's not that there's never any fact-checking, just in my experience there hasn't been, and there's not a lot of comparing to what the recent scientific literature says. But in any case, if you just look at the sheer number of earthquakes, it has risen dramatically. He says, but these are the beginning, in verse 8, these are the, merely the beginning of birth pangs. This is the beginning. The beginning of birth pangs. That's it. So, we could say that the 20th century was the first time, time we ever saw signs that may project here on what Jesus said. But he says that's just the beginning of birth pangs. That's not the end of it. So, I have four children. I've never had a baby myself. I know men walk around. We just had a baby. I never said that. I said my wife had a baby. But I know it's really a communal thing right now that, that couples have babies. Shireen had four gave birth to four children, and I was there every time, but I didn't give birth to those children. It was, I wasn't in pain, and, it, and no problem for me. All right. But I know that Shireen would always start, these pains come days before. You know, it gets, boom, this pain, like, oh, something's, something's going on. It comes days before, and by the fourth kid, I didn't even care. She even called me in my office. I think, I think the baby's going to come. Okay, okay. And, I'll come home, and it, I went, I got the car washed on the way home, and taking my time, because the first kid, I was just going a million miles an hour to the hospital, by the last one, I was just, just taking my time, we got to the hospital, and like, man, you are ready, I mean, boom, you just rolled it right in, and the baby came out, because, first of all, the, the more babies you have, the faster they come, but I was just, I'd always been taken off, I'd just been, been, been made subtle in this, because of all the birth pangs. If you take them all seriously, you'll be running to the hospital all the time. You just don't take them seriously. When they're going to come, you'll know it. And, and, uh, but this is just the beginning of birth pangs. This is just the beginning. 
So when people say, we're living in the end times, okay. But I, this is just the beginning of birth pangs. Maybe we are, maybe we aren't. But I've known lots of guys who say, we're living in the end times, and those guys are now dead. They're dead. And the end times didn't come for them. Every generation, it seems like, of Christians, including that first generation, thought that their generation was the generation for the end of the age. Did you know that? Every generation has always thought this. I don't know. Turn over. We're going to now look at, at, at uh, uh, Luke's account. So we're going go to go to Luke chapter 21. And Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4 are, are about that, uh, uh, that offering to the widow's might. But in Luke chapter 5, it, it, Luke chapter 21, verse 5, it picks up in, in this discourse. And, and uh, um, then, then he, he talks about how there's going to be signs in verse 10. Luke chapter 21, verse 10. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Now verse 12. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and will persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. So in verse 12, look what Jesus does. He gives us a clue. This is why I say you've got to put your thinking caps on. Students really want to think when they're in learning in academic classes, and it comes to the Bible, and, oh, I don't have to think, the Bible's... A... No, you really got to think here. What's Jesus saying? He says in verse 12, but before all these things, what things? The things I told you about in verse 10 and 11? The things about the beginning of birth pangs of the, of the coming age? But before the coming age, here's what's going to happen to you, he says to the disciples. You're going to be thrown into prisons, and, and you're, you're going to have all this stuff happen to you. In verse 13, it will lead many to an opportunity for your testimony. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Verse 14 of Luke 21. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and, you will be put and, so, and, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. Yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. So, he says before those birth pangs, he's telling now these four disciples. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He's telling these four. He says, but before any of this happens, you guys are never going to see it. You guys are never going to see this. Because you guys, for you... He's saying they're going to lay their hands on you and they're going to persecute you. And, and so there's many things that he says that, that's, that's going to happen to them. First of all, they're going to be persecuted by the Jews. They're going to be persecuted by the Gentiles. And they're going to be persecuted by their family. The Jews, the Gentiles, and their families. Remember, kings and governors weren't Jews. These were the Gentiles. Synagogues were the Jews. And, and then he says, by your own families you'll be persecuted. Number one. Number two. He, he says in Mark chapter 13, if you look in the Mark portion of this, verse 10, he says, the gospel will be preached to all the world. He says, before any of this happens, you guys are going to take the gospel to the entire world. Verse thir- and, and then he goes on, you'll be given divine utterance. This thing of, look, God gave them divine utterance. They didn't have to prepare beforehand, so I don't have to prepare for a Bible study. God will give me divine utterance. No way. This is, that's totally out of context. You go into that thinking the Holy Spirit will fill you. It will be shallow as can be. This th- these things come by study and pouring yourself out before God. If you are stuck in a situation where somebody says, hey, nobody showed up, can you teach something? God will give you utterance at that time. 
But if you haven't been preparing your own life for the things that you have to prepare for, it won't go very well. This was a, for a specific thing, and we see this thing happen to, happening to them in the book of Acts. Then he speaks of their death. He says, many of you are going to be martyred. And they were. And so out of those, those uh, 12 disciples, all of them were, were martyred, including Matthias, that 12th, except John. John was the only one who was not martyred, but he was banished to the island of Patmos. And, and, uh, um, and then he says, he says, you're going to die. But then he says in verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. In other words, this is eternal. Eternally, you will be fine. You're going to die in your flesh, but eternally, eternally you will be fine. And so then you might say, how did they bring the gospel to all the world? I mean, how could that have been? We haven't even done that yet. Well, let's, let's look in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul is writing this now in 60 AD. So Jesus is speaking to them, the Olivet Discourse, in around 30 AD. And in 60 AD, Paul is writing something. He writes something, uh, one, of the, one of these prison books, and he's writing them, writing to the, the, the church of Colossae. So he's writing to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. So Paul makes reference to the gospel has gone throughout the entire world. We only have the accounts of two apostles, uh, 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 Peter, and then Paul, who came later in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, but remember, the titles are not inspired. Those were put in afterwards. Uh, that's really the account of only two, two of them and all the places they went. There were, lots, there were other apostles that went all over the world taking this gospel. And now look in that same, in that same portion in, in uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse, look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So Paul references this work of the apostles, how it had gone into all the world. We somehow think that it is now our task to take it to all the world. And it is our task to take it all to all the world. But if we think that only once we have gone, then Jesus will come. No, they took it. In Paul's mind, Jesus' mind, he says, before those pangs ever start, you guys are going to take this to all the world. And Paul references that. Now, we are to go into all the world, and, and missions is great. If you have any inkling of a heart for missions, pursue that. Pursue that and go on short-term missions and feel that thing out. And if you are inspired by that, I say, go be a missionary. This is the best thing to do. Do it. And allow God to work in your heart and partake in this. But what do we see? He says, all this persecution is going to come upon you. All of these struggles are going to come upon you. If you look at our world, there's a lot of turmoil going on. You hear about this Ebola virus. You hear about what's going on in the Middle East with ISIS and what's going on in, 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 uh, in the Ukraine with Russia and all this stuff. And as a young person, you may, might be like, what's going on? I mean, I just went to school. I want to get a job. And what's happening? Let me tell you something. You're not alone. When I, when I was young, I saw the race riots going on. And it looked like the country was going to be torn asunder. 
just just torn asunder by these riots that were going on. And, and uh, uh, you, you never knew where you could go where a riot would start. I saw the Vietnam War. I saw my, my friend's fathers going off to the Vietnam War and then not returning. And that war just went on and on and on until my, my, my friend's brothers were then going to the war. And that war continued on. And then, you know, I was coming up to the age of going to the war and then, boom, they, they stopped the draft. And so you see these things coming in life. I remember after 9-11 that so many students at Rice were dejected. Like, wow, I mean, just the whole world, the stock market has crashed, 9-11, and what's happening? And I said, be encouraged. This too will pass. It'll be fine. This too will pass. The Lord defines for us what the end of the age is going to look like. And he starts describing this, and we'll see more of this. We're not quite there. The rapture could come at any instant. He never tells us when that's going to come. But just don't let your hearts be troubled. I want to close with this one portion from Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. This is one of the minor prophets, and uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk. And I want to close with this portion in Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. This is one of the minor prophets, a hard book to find, but that's why you have an index. Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to read from verse 17. And remember, this was written many hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Verse 17 of Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and though there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So, so you think about these words. Let me. I want to. I want to read this again in the NIV. In the NIV translation, um, he says, "Though the fig, verse 17 of Habakkuk chapter 3, though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, and though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, and there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls." So it's gotten pretty desperate. You know, this is pretty bad. This is a lot worse than we have it. Look what he says. He says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. We make a decision to be joyful. We make a decision. If you think about the world and all the things spiraling around us, it will pull you down. And this is not unique. This has always been. If you were to think about the world and all that's happening, it will always pull you down. We make a decision. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He doesn't say, I feel like rejoicing in the Lord. No, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing is a decision. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. You pick up the Word of God and you start to reflect on this Word and the promises of this Word and you say, Lord, I make a decision to be joyful in God my Savior. I make a decision to be glad in the Lord. All these things hurling about me, Lord, I will trust You. In Psalm 1 it says, if you take the Word of the Lord and make it your meditation, you will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. And then it talks about how you will be bearing fruit when everyone else around you is drying up. You make a decision to pick up the Word of God. 
And if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't given your heart to Jesus, you don't have access to what I'm talking about. It's only in Jesus will you have access to this. And I ask you, don't wait. Accept the Lord today. Ask Him into your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I'm a sinner. Come into my life and speak to me through your word. And then you'll have access. And then to those of you that know the Lord, don't let this thing pass by without taking hold. To say, Lord, this day I choose to be joyful in you. With all that's happening around me, I choose to walk with you in this. And be encouraged in faith. The Lord has not forgotten you. And His timing is perfect. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the encouragement of Your Word that You know all the timing and that You graciously gave signs to Your disciples when they asked You for signs. Lord, I pray for these young people that You would encourage their hearts in the midst of all the things coming at them in the world. That You would encourage their hearts and that they would make a decision to be joyful in You that they would make a decision to be glad in God their Savior. Father, I pray that You would teach them how to walk in Your ways. Let them walk in Your ways, O Lord, I pray. The grace of God be there. The grace of God be in their lives. Let them walk in Your ways. Father, I pray for those here who know You that they would take Your word of, the Word of God and take hold of it and enjoy it and be encouraged through it. And Father, for those here who don't know You, Lord, I pray that they would say, Lord Jesus, save me because I am a sinner and come into my life. And that they would be able to access the joys of the Holy Spirit. The grace of God be with them, I pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.